On this episode of Creepy Chisme, you will hear the horrific and tedious timeline of serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells, better known as Coast to Coast. He spent his life traveling and murdering people of all ages. I also update on two true crime cases that are underway right now in the media, as well as read a listener email you don't want to miss. Um, join in if you dare. Hola mi gente, bienvenidos. I'm your host Lore and this is Creepy Chisme. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente! It's your girl Lore, back from spring vacation. Sorry I left y'all hanging, but I needed it. My education staff out there, y'all know how this time of year is. The nice weather makes people loco. Anyways, how y'all doing? Me? I'm definitely going through it. I'm going through something. (laughs) Not doing well mentally, emotionally, or physically, but I'll be okay, right? Uh, We've had some family stuff going on, and I think that on top of work, the end of the school year, and just life in general just put me a little bit over the edge. But like I always say, mi gente, as long as you don't allow yourself to stay low, you'll be fine. It's okay to feel low sometimes, but you gotta come right back out of it. And I have a lot of stuff coming up this next month, so I think that'll help. So over my spring break, I did absolutely nothing. No podcast stuff, no writing, nada. I just hung out with my nephew and lounged around, ate a lot of snacks, <laughs> gained weight, <laughs> But luckily the weather was amazing the entire time, so we got to go outside and soak up the sun and that just felt so good. I don't know if it's because my skin is getting old, but 10 minutes outside and my skin feels like it's burning off. I mean, is that something that happens as we get older or is that just me? Or is the sun getting hotter, right? need to get me like a giant sun hat. I want to be the lady with the big old hat. Yeah, that's going to be me this summer. I want to quickly say a huge thank you to those of you that just reached out and made sure that I was doing okay. That meant a lot. Also to those that message telling me that it was okay to take a break. Not that I needed your permission, (laughs) but like you just reassured me like, yeah, take all the time you need, Lore, and to not feel bad about taking a break. I know the season just started. I'm telling you, I've got my outlines written. I was ahead of the game. You know, I took advantage of my last break, which was a long one, but it's the getting together with people and recording and editing. I just, I needed a break. Not from the podcast, but from life in general. So I really took advantage on my spring break. But yeah, it definitely meant a lot. So again, thank you very much. This week's been crazy as well. And there almost wasn't an episode this week, but I am recording the Friday before the Sunday it comes out. (laughs) So I'm in a good mood. It's Friday. We got some really good news, thankfully, in the family about someone close to me. And I'm 
super happy about that. So that was like a little weight off my shoulders and then every teacher loves Friday, right? <laughs> so it's Friday and we have a family get together this weekend and my niece is performing her last play of junior high before she goes to high school. I really hope she sticks with it in high school because high school theater is way different than junior high theater, which don't get me wrong, her theater, they're, they do, they're doing um, Matilda and it was so good. It was so good. I cannot wait for her to do theater in high school. I was a theater nerd fun fact and i'm so excited so i really hope she doesn't get that freshman itis where like i don't want to do anything i just want to get a feel no bitch do it do it please <laughs> oh my god i can't believe i just said bitch she's not a bitch i love my baby but i want her i do i want her to join everything do everything because i was that freshman that was like yeah i just want to make friends and hang out and i missed a lot my freshman year. All right, you guys, I don't want to talk too much. It's time for an updater story I've recently heard. Okay, I have been watching a lot of court cases since the Tristan Bailey case I told you all about. The mother's trial is set to start very soon. I think in early May, they're going to select a jury. So I can't wait for that. I think she can only be given up to five years. I have a feeling she'll walk away with probation, but we'll see. And if you don't know, I'm talking about the mother of Aiden Fucci, who was recently charged with the murder of Tristan Bailey and given a life sentence, I believe, which was 25 years because of his age. So in 25 years, he can come back and he can like try again because he's so he was so young. It's stupid, whatever. I'm sorry, but his is a special kind of case. He should stay locked up forever. But I heard that him and his defense, they have, from the date that he was sentenced, they have 30 days to, like, rebuttal. And I, I heard that they're going to. So I'm curious to know what they're going to say. Next up, I've been watching the trial of Leticia Stouch. Oh my god, if you haven't seen this woman yet... Just look her up. My God, esta vieja, demonio, pure evil. So, quick recap. Leticia was arrested after she lied and did a lot of shady shit after her stepson, Gannon, disappeared while under her care. Now, just a few weeks after he disappeared, they located his remains in a suitcase near a highway bridge near Pensacola, Florida. Now, the suitcase was said to belong to the family, and Leticia's brother said that he actually saw her load the heavy suitcase into a car. And he remembers because he asked, why was she struggling? Like, why was the suitcase so heavy? And she said, because it's full of softballs. Okay. Now her brother broke down during questioning of his sister. And knowing the boy had been found, he started shouting, why Leticia? Why Leticia? Why? And that video was shown in court. Later, it was discovered that the young boy was stabbed a total of 18 times and shot in the jaw. Now, Leticia was arrested for a number of things, but also while in court, they showed a video of the day she was taken in, where she slipped out of handcuffs and attacked the officer near her. That officer testified as well, I believe, and stated that this woman was sane, but very manipulative and calculating. Now, she is pleading insanity, 
arguing that her traumatic upbringing is a cause of her behavior. They are claiming that she had a psychotic crack. I've never heard that term before. Anybody in law out there, like, is that a term? Psychotic crack? I thought it was just called, like, lost their marbles, went insane. So I'm gonna use that term, psychotic crack. But pretty much, I guess it's just stating that she lost her damn mind. Now her ex-husband and her brother both claim that she is sane. they never saw any reason she wasn't, which makes this all the more scarier. Prosecutors argue this too, saying that her cleaning the scene and disposing of the body shows that she knew right from wrong. I'm telling y'all, this woman looks insane. Like her hair is a mess. She sits in the courtroom and she just like, it's just, you just have to look it up. <laughs> I can't describe it. But like if she was sitting in a room with me, I would be terrified. Now the other day, she was actually caught flipping off eyewitnesses on the stand and got yelled at by the judge. Mm-hmm. They also brought in the man who found the suitcase and the whole courtroom was silent for his testimony. Leticia sat with her hand over her mouth and her head down. The man was clearly emotional, trying to get his words out about how they discovered what was in the bag, or in the suitcase, sorry. So tragic. I'm telling you, this woman is definitely definitely playing up the insanity plea and doing a really good job because I'm telling you, I'm like, this bitch is crazy. Then there's the Lori Vallow trial going on. Now this one is not being filmed, but they do have the live audio available to the public. Now I think Netflix or Hulu made a documentary series about this. It was about her. I think it was called like the Lori Vallow documentary or the Lori Vallow story, something like that. So if you want to go watch it, I highly recommend. It was really good. Um, but Lori is accused of killing her two kids, Tylee, 17, and JJ, 7. She's also accused of murdering her latest husband's ex-wife, who died weeks before Lori, and he married. What a coincidence. Now this couple got into some really crazy religious shit, where they thought that they could tell which people had light in them and who had darkness in them. It was like some zombie doomsday cult shit. It's wild, I'm telling you. So yeah, definitely check out that documentary. I think it's on Netflix, if I'm not wrong. But anyway, so her defense claimed there's just not enough evidence to charge her, and she has pled not guilty. So the two kids' remains were found in June of 2020 on her husband's property. I think that's evidence enough right there, but okay. So the daughter was found as a pile of bones and JJ was wrapped in plastic. Now they are not just charging Lori, but also the husband and they were charging her brother. Now at first, Lori was not fit to stand trial for her mental health, but then a judge reversed that and now the trial has begun. She was never charged for the murder of her ex-husband Charles Vallow because yes, he was killed too, but her brother was. Apparently during an altercation, the brother shot Charles Vallow, who they claimed got violent, so it was self-defense. They talk a lot about that on the documentary. Now she did get charged for conspiracy to commit murder for this due to text messages. Her brother died later that same year. So far, this trial has been a lot of cult discussions, zombies, demons, evil spirits. They've been showing the strange text conversations between Lori and her husband on these topics and how they were getting ready for the end of days. So they probably thought they were like angels of God or warriors of God, right? Oh, so crazy. Had it not been for two concerned grandparents who had not heard from their grandkids though, 
I don't think Lori would have ever said anything. Lori and her husband were arrested while they were vacationing in Hawaii for failing to abide to a court order to produce the kids. And pretty much just show like they're okay. During this trial, an officer recounted how he found the kids as they showed photos of the two decomposing bodies. He described how the smell was so bad that they had to take turns digging. While this occurred, Lori Vallow's attorneys asked that they waive her presence for the remainder of the day. And the judge said, hell no, bitch, sit your ass right there and look what you did to your babies. Okay, he really didn't say that, but he definitely thought it. I know I did. So yeah, that trial is still going on. And I feel like I'm watching a novella when I'm watching these things. Like, they are so crazy. Almost as wild as the story I have for you today. It's time to get creepy. Today I'm going to talk about Tommy Lynn Sells, better known as Coast to Coast, because he murdered Coast to Coast. Literally everywhere he killed someone. It's insane. There is a lot of information in this case, and I'm going to do my best to organize it as well as I can for you, but it's a lot, okay? And what you need to understand is, it's full of chisme. So much chisme, all stemming from the murderer himself, Tommy Sells. So what you'll see at the end of this case is that he does get in trouble in the end for a murder. But it's not until then that he is like, hey, you want to know about this one too? And then it just keeps going. It's insane. It's also one of these cases and the reason why I... I don't want to sound crazy, but y'all are listening to my podcast, so you're right there with me. But the reason why I enjoy looking into serial killer stories, because one, you got to think about their upbringing, right? What causes person to be this way? What happened along the way, right? But also how they go from this to this, and then it gets worse. Because if people just pay attention, right? If you just see the signs in someone, maybe somebody could have stopped him before he got to where he got. And by that, I mean law enforcement. This is another case. I believe it was the Toolbox Killers in season one, where they're just in and out of jail, in and out of jail. It's ridiculous for minor things. I don't know. <laughs> it pisses me off. That It really does. It pisses me off. So let's just get right into it. So Tommy Lynn Sells was born in June of 1964 in Oakland, California. He was a twin. He had a sister and they were born to a single mom. Shortly after their birth, he and his twin sister caught meningitis and unfortunately his twin sister did not make it. His mother, Nina Sells, sent very young Tommy to go live with an aunt of his, but by the age of five, Nina went back for him. So I guess Nina sent him because she needed help caring for kids. He had other siblings too, but the aunt Tommy was living with decided that, shit, after five years of taking care of somebody else's kid, I'm going to claim him, so I'm going to adopt him. But the mom was like, hell no. So she goes, she gets Tommy, brings him back, 
and I'm not sure how his life with his aunt was. I couldn't find any information about, you know, his living arrangements with his aunt, but I'm going to assume it wasn't the best because this poor kid comes back and it's no better. So they lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was Nina and her four kids. Life was tough, of course. She's a single mother, not to mention his dad was never really around. I did find one thing about it later, which I'll mention, but other than that, you don't really hear about his father. At the age of eight, Tommy says that a man named Willis Clark started coming around a lot and staying at the house with them. Again, no idea who this man was, but he hung around the home pretty often. Tommy says the man began molesting him and his mother allowed it to happen. In some articles I read, the man paid the mom for these awful acts, and in others, there is no mention of a payment. The man was left in charge of the kids many times, so he did whatever he wanted to them. I also found that that man also did get charged with pedophilia, but never for molesting Tommy. But it kind of shows like that he's not lying, you know? Tommy mentions that the repeated abuse he experienced as a child with this man really affected him. At age eight, he began drinking beer, and by age 10, he dropped out of school altogether. He began smoking pots and drinking way more and became a troublemaker. One day when Tommy was 13, he decided to climb into his grandmother's bed fully nude. It's not clear why he did this or what his intention was, but it pissed his mother off. With all the trouble he's been giving her, she had enough. She kicks him out at the age of 13 and shortly after, his mother and the siblings move away without telling him. Now, the mother and the siblings say this is not true. They didn't move without telling him. He didn't want to go with them. Again, cheese coming from Tommy himself. Is it true? I don't know. I'm just sharing it with y'all. Now, Tommy was left homeless at 13, like I said, and this is where his reign of terror begins. Now, I want to mention, and you will see through this timeline, that Tommy was only ever convicted of one murder. But later while in prison is where we get all of these other stories. But before we start that, the one thing I did find about his father was that in 1973, his father passed away. And at the funeral, Tommy, who was clearly distraught and hit by this event, emotionally tried talking to his dad at the ceremony. But it was like a whole big scene and commotion and got really rowdy and he was yelling at his dad and his grandma was like, shut the hell up. And they kicked him out of his own father's funeral. So there's definitely some resentment there for his dad, which is another huge red flag. So we have a 13-year-old homeless Tommy. To survive, he traveled across the U.S. from 1978 to 1999. He still drank a lot, took a lot of drugs when he could because he was homeless, didn't have money. He spent little time working odd-end jobs and doing short-term labor. He worked in a few barber shops and was caught for a lot of minor offenses for different things. By age 14, I found an article that said he met up once again with his mother, Nina, and siblings. They had moved to Arkansas, and so he went and met them there and stood for a little bit. That is, of course, until one day he jumped into the shower while his mother was in there. His mother clearly knew her son had mental issues, but Tommy was refused help by a mental health clinic. So to cope, as many do who can't afford help, he became even more of an alcoholic. By age 18 in 1982, Tommy gets his first arrest for public intoxication. 
This was the first of many more offenses, theft, assault, drunk driving, and more public intoxication. It's a never-ending cycle, guys. What police did not know is that according to Tommy, by age 18, he had already killed. He claims that in 1979, at the age of 16, he was breaking into a house where he found a man sexually abusing a young boy. In a fit of rage, he attacked the man and shoots him after the man pulled a gun out. The man was John Cade Sr. Given his past, this story seems believable. However, it's never been proven. In 1983, still in Arkansas, Tommy got a job as a carnival worker. Eventually, he'd go back to St. Louis, Missouri, but not before committing two more murders. In July of 1985, while working with the carnival, he meets 28-year-old Ina Corrett and her four-year-old son, Rory. Now, Ina invited Tommy to her home for the evening. However, according to Tommy, after having sex, he caught Ina stealing money from his backpack so he beat her to death with her son's baseball bat. He then decided to kill the four-year-old because he saw him as a threat and a potential witness. A few days later, the bodies were discovered, but no ties to Tommy. Now, I always give a trigger warning at the beginning of my episodes, and I'm sorry I should have said this at the beginning of this story, but a lot of these cases have some really vulgar details. In case one slips out, I don't want you to be caught off guard. So, yes, warning. So anyone who kills is evil, right? But to hurt a child, especially in the way he did, just shows what kind of person he has become. So after this brutal murder, Tommy does get arrested, but for car theft. Now he gets convicted for this crime and is given two years in prison. However, he's released after 18 months. Now I've said this many times before, but you know damn well why he was let out because he's a white man, period. So February, 1985, he's paroled. Now I found that while in prison, he became a father. A woman named Nicole Snow gave birth to a little girl and claimed that Tommy was the dad. So he's out. He returns to crime almost immediately. I mean, at this point, he's gotten away with murder a few times, so why not again, right? Tommy claims around this time he shoots another person, again saying it was self-defense. It's easy to say self-defense, right? So after that, he skips town. He jumps on the first train to Texas. He then overdoses on heroin and ends up getting hospitalized and sent to rehab. Soon as he does his 30 days, he gets out and returns right back to his life of crime by stealing a car. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay, it's just the life this man is living, it's, it's insane. <laughs> So police start asking him about the car theft that took place as soon as he is out. And so he's he's like, I gotta get out of here. So he drives out to California. Later, authorities believe at this time, Tommy is responsible for the murders of Jennifer Dewitt, who was found with a gunshot wound to the head, and also Michelle Xavier, a 19-year-old found with a slit throat. He had been working as a tow truck driver and says that Jennifer was a prostitute and called a tow truck because her car broke down, and he claims that he asked her for sex instead of payment, and she declined him. So he shot her and threw her in a river. Ugh, men. All right, so he admits to the death of Jennifer. In October of 1985, he gets in trouble again for some shit I don't even know. I can't keep up. <laughs> I can't. I can't keep up with this timeline. It was something minor, but... When you're on parole, it doesn't matter what you did. You could have jaywalked. 
you broke parole. So his parole was revoked in October 1985. He goes back to prison, but by December, he's out. He gets released on parole again. By May of 86, he's off parole. He's a free man. By October 1986, he's back in prison for driving while intoxicated. In 1987, only a few months after Suzanne's murder, in early 1987, Tommy is still living his life with his vices and he's still moving all over. So he finds himself in Nevada. He's living in a home. He's uh, renting a room in a home with a 20-year-old Stephanie Stroh. Tommy later confesses to police that he drugged the girl with LSD and then strangled her. He claims he threw her body in the hot springs of the Nevada desert and used concrete to weigh her body down. In late 1987, he strikes again. He says he murdered 27-year-old Suzanne Corks. Course. I think that's how you say it. K-O-R-C-Z. He murders her outside of a Niagara Falls bar. Now, Suzanne was never found until later in 1995. She was found two miles from the bar she went missing from in a wooded area. But it's not long before he finds his next victim. So at this point, Tommy is just hitchhiking cross-country. Hence the name Coast to Coast. So after he leaves New York, he goes south. And this man, Keith Darting, a man from Ena, Illinois, sees Tommy while driving home. Picks him up, which apparently was a normal thing, right? Back in the day, hitchhiking. <laughs> I know my aunt said she used to hitchhike like it was no thing. So he brings him home because he's like, hey man, you want a dinner? You want to eat? You need some clothes? I got you. Come on in and meet my family and eat some dinner with us. And Tommy's like, okay, man. This, in my opinion, is where I feel that Tommy is thinking he's invincible. He's going buck wild at this point. And Tommy, of course, is all for going into a stranger's home and feasting with them, right? So he goes to the Darden residence with Keith where he meets three-year-old Pete, I know, I know, and a very pregnant Elaine. So they eat dinner. They're all sitting around the table. Soon as dinner is over, Tommy stands up. He says, thank you. And without thought, pulls out a gun and shoots Keith. But that's not all. He goes on to then mutilate the poor guy's genitals. He then finds a hammer and brutally beats three-year-old Pete. He then turns his attention to Elaine and tries to rape her. I mean, at this point, after just witnessing your son and your husband be murdered, just take me, please. I mean, I'm sure she was begging him to just end her life. Oh, a nightmare. Now, Elaine ended up going into premature labor after everything that she just saw and was going through. But here is the really fucked up part. Now, I've talked about some really horrible stuff on Creepy Cheese before, but this is too much for even me. I'm not even going to say what he did, but what I will say is Tommy helped deliver the baby and then brutally attacked the baby and then brutally attacked Elaine. He then took the bodies of the two children and Elaine and laid them in the bed together. And he even tucked them in. His weapon of choice that he used to discuss disgustingly murder the baby and Elaine was inserted into Elaine. Fucking monster. I'm telling you, when I read the details of that crime, I felt sick and I had to take a break. So yeah, that's the end of that. Now the Darting family murders were not solved for over a decade 
until Tommy confessed to this crime later while in custody. Again, I'm telling you, he's the one telling the cheesement on himself. Which almost makes you think like, what a monster because he's not leaving any details out. He tells them everything. But how horrific for their relatives to not only lose four of their loved ones, but then to find out how they were killed? Absolutely atrocious. After this in 1988, it was confessed that a Salem, New Hampshire girl, Melissa Ann Trembley, who vanished, had been found dead on railroad tracks. The last known sighting of the girl was at a convenience store parking lot where a witness says she was speaking to a man that matched Tommy Lincell's description. It was also claimed late into 1988, around the fall, Tommy paired up with a woman and her three-year-old son to get money from people who felt sorry for them. After they saved enough, the three of them went on a road trip, but the Jane Doe and the boy were never seen again. Another claim was that in December 1988, he murdered a man named Kent Allen Lawton in Arizona after arguing over a joint. He says he slashed the man's throat, which is something he likes to do to his victims. A few days later, Tommy gets arrested for assault, but then he gets released when the victim doesn't proceed with the allegation. In January of 1989, he says he killed a prostitute who he claims was a man, not a woman. So he got pissed. This dude is a lunatic, not living in reality at all. He's so far gone at this point, but we are not done yet. In May of 89, he says he killed two more in the town of Roseboro, Oregon. Is it Oregon or Oregon? <laughs> what do you guys say? Is it Oregon? Oregon. Oregon. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Why am I having so much trouble? You know, like when you say a word and it just does not sound right and then you start questioning what is the proper way to say it? Oregon, right? The Oregon Trail. Oregon. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're done. <laughs> In August of 1989, he gets booked in Arkansas for theft. Now, it truly pisses me off the amount of times this man gets imprisoned and then released. Do they not look at the background? I... <laughs> like, doesn't that all pop up in the system? at least back in the late 80s, did it all pop up in the system that this man had been imprisoned before? Or is it because he was all over the place that it only brings up what he's been imprisoned for at their jail? That's a good question. Should research that. So just a few days after they let him out, he goes back to rehab in October of 1989, but only because he gets booked again and they make him. By January of 1990, he gets out and tries his shenanigans again. He attempts to sell a couple some stolen used tires. Now he does get arrested in January of 89 and they keep him for 16 months. He was at the Wyoming Penitentiary and he kind of laid low a little after this. Stays out of trouble, but he can never stay away, right? In May of 1992, he strikes again. While in Charleston, West Virginia, a woman named Fabian Witherspoon, a 20-year-old, brings him to her home to clothe and feed him again. Tommy is the one telling police this, right? These people, these strangers, are bringing him into his home and being good to him, feeding him, clothing him. Is it true? I don't know. 
do this many people just bring strangers into their homes? I could never, especially if you're a 20 year old girl who lives alone. So after being fed, waits till after dinner, right? And he attacks the girl, taking full advantage of her. And then he began to stab her. But Witherspoon managed to fight him off and take his knife. Yes, girl. I get so happy whenever I read a story of a victim who overpowers their attacker. She ended up really hurting him. She stabbed him 23 times. He managed to grab a piano stool and beat her unconscious. However, the woman did survive. So after this attack, he was charged. And in June of 1993, somehow, the rape charge was dropped. How can a person get lucky? Like, how can a person get so lucky to two times in their life get these assault charges dropped? I'm assuming for this one, though, there was no evidence, which is really sad, but in a lot of times in rape cases, no evidence. You're going by someone's word, you know? But not in common, right? I mean, yeah, a lot of times rape cases just don't go anywhere because if you don't run your ass to the hospital and get checked and do a, a whole a rape test, you don't have evidence, right? You don't have the evidence. It's really sad. But he doesn't walk away. He does get sentenced for the attack and gets a sentence of 2 to 10 years. Which, what the fuck kind of sentence is 2 to 10 years? I don't know, but here's something unbelievable though. While in prison, he gets married? I don't get it either, but let's keep going because we're not done. It's also during the stay that he gets a bipolar diagnosis. Again, I want to reiterate, being bipolar doesn't make you a serial killer, right? We know this. Having a mental illness does not make you a kill, a killer, a serial killer, a murderer, an evil person. I think the stigma of mental illness and evil or criminals or whatever, uh, it just, it's, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. But however, untreated, right? Untreated for many, many years. And on top of that, addictions, drugs, and alcohol, it doesn't help. So, but he finally gets diagnosed with something. Now, in May of 1997, he is paroled, and with his wife, they moved to Tennessee. But even though he was married and had a home, he just could not give up the thug life, the traveler, the cross-roading, hitchhiking, the free man lifestyle. So he would often just leave home for a while and not come back. And you and I both know, once a cold-hearted bitch, always a cold-hearted bitch. Just ask my ex. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Anyways. October of 1997, he claims that his vehicle broke down and it stopped right in front of an apartment building where 13-year-old Stephanie Mahoney of Missouri was playing outside. Hmm, what a coincidence, right? Your truck breaks down right in front of a an apartment where a young girl is playing. Okay, like I said, this is coming from Tommy himself. He says that once the adults in the area left, he abducted and killed her. Stephanie's body was later found in a small pond on a neighboring farm. Y'all, I've lost count. I really have. So disgusting. Now, during the late months of 1997, he went back to working the carnivals, and once again, he finds himself a nice little lady to entice. While in Del Rio, Texas, he meets and shacks up with Jessica Lavrai, 
and her four kids. Mind you, he's still married to the other bitch. Obviously, this man has some kind of game, right? Let me see if I can find a young photo of him. I've seen his older mugshot, but hold on. Let me look. I want to see how he looked. Because these women are just... Let me see. What did he look... Okay, there's a baby picture. Oh, because he's a hot mess once he gets to prison. I don't see any younger photos. Yeah, he's not cute. Mm-mm. Ew. No. He's not cute. So I don't know, but these women are into him. So while he's gone in Texas, his wife is in Arkansas and gives birth to a son. She ends up giving the baby up for adoption. She probably felt like if you ain't gonna take care of this baby, neither am I. So see ya. That's so sad. In October of 1998, after months of playing nice guy with Levry, they attempt to get married but remember, he's already married, so it's not a legal marriage. In May of 1999, Deborah Harris and her daughter, Ambria Halliburton, only eight, were both found stabbed to death in Tennessee. Now, Tommy Sells takes claim of this death, of these deaths, and only days later, another body is found belonging to Mary B. Perez, nine years old, who was abducted from a fair. Again, Later, as part of a plea bargain, he says he was responsible for this crime too. So yeah, definitely like the late, late 90s, he was just having a free-for-all. He was just taking them left and right. That's insane. Also in May of 1999, he finds 13-year-old Haley McHone in Lexington, Kentucky, and he rapes and strangles her to death. He claims that he stole her bike and sold it. Now, the same day after this awful murder, I'm assuming he used the bike money to buy booze because he gets arrested for public intoxication once again. He's kept overnight but released the next day. And I think this kind of scared him because he left town immediately. So yeah, so he's just losing all control. He can't control the want to murder, it seems, anymore because he's just killing everybody. And his alcoholism is bad. It's just uncontrollable. He's getting sloppy now. He's just leaving these bodies out in the open, right? So yes, we are reaching the end of his reign of terror. So May of 1999, he gets arrested again in Madison, Wisconsin for being drunk and being threatening with a weapon, which was a box cutter, apparently. And from my years of retail, those things are fucking sharp. Don't even play with those. But yes, he only stays in jail until June 24th. So not even a full month. Apparently he assaulted an inmate while in prison and he was still let go. Now literally the next month, July of 1999, he abducts a 14-year-old Bobby Lynn Wolford. He took her from a convenience store near Kingfisher, Oklahoma. He sodomized the girl then shot her as she tried to escape. Bobby's body was found four months later in a wooded area. Later in custody, this is another victim. Tommy admits to killing, but only after they linked him to the victim by a pair of earrings he stole from the girl. Sometime after this, he goes back to Del Rio, Texas, and goes back with Jessica. Baby, take me back, please. I wonder if he like shared, like, by the way, I got in prison for a while. Take me back. Ugh, I can never. I can never. <laughs> in December of 1999, he claims he committed the murders of Danny and Kathy Freeman, who were found in their burning mobile home. Their daughter Ashley and her friend Loria Bible were never found or seen after the fire. Tommy says, Yep, 
I killed them and dumped them near the border of Oklahoma and Texas. It almost makes me think like, is he really being honest? Like I told you guys, it's not until the end when they really do catch him for a murder that he's like, okay, let me tell you about all the other ones. And I want, a part of me is like, he's being honest. Like he's, I mean, 13 of these, however many he <laughs> admitted to, 13 were traced back to him. So, and they were, they were true. Exactly what he said. The victims had the wounds that he said. So, is he being honest or is he trying to have a kill count? You guys let me know what you think. So yeah, a lot of information I threw at you guys. A lot happening. But we've come to the last, his last murder. On December 31st, 1999, he enters a residence in Del Rio, Texas, belonging to the Harris family. Apparently, he entered the home through an open window, saw a young girl lying in her bed, says he cut open her shirt, and her bra with a butcher knife and then slit her underwear on the side. But the girl woke up and he knew there were people in the home. So I think he panicked and he cut her throat. Then as he was walking out of the bedroom, when he opened the bedroom door, the light from the hallway shined onto another girl in the room. She was staring right at him. So he reached over and just sliced her throat too. Kayleen Harris, 13, was killed during this crime. But Crystal Searles, 10 years old, was the second girl he attacked, and she survived after escaping to a neighbor's through the back door of the trailer. Here's her summary of what happened that night. So this is the words of Crystal, the 10-year-old that survived. We went to bed kind of late, but I remember I woke up to like a scream. I was on the top bunk of the bed and I just popped my head up a little bit and I was looking around. I never sat up fully or anything, but the light was on so I could see. I could see at the end of the bed this scary guy. He had scruffy hair, long dark curly hair, and a big scary long bushy beard that, you know, just took over his whole face. And then his eyes were just dark and mean. And then I saw that Katie had blood on her and that he had a knife in his hand. He had a knife across her throat and his hand on her mouth. And he just cut her throat and she fell to the ground. He still didn't notice I was in the room and he was getting ready to leave. He opened the door, almost had the light off, looked one last time and he saw me looking at him. I was trying to scoot to the right side of the bed cause he was on the left. He just reached over and cut my throat and then I just remember laying there and the light turning off and I heard the door shut. And so I got on my hands and knees and I was crawling across the floor in the bedroom and I came across Katie on the floor. She was kind of making a gasping noise or maybe she was choking. And then I was trying to comfort her. I laid next to her, rubbing her back. And that's when I realized I couldn't talk cause all I wanted to say was, Everything's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. But I couldn't. And then, I mean, as soon as she stopped making those noises, I had this feeling, you know, get out of here. Get up. Come on. Go. Don't lay here. Go. It was dark outside. I was in my pajamas. No shoes. Nothing. And I just decided, I saw a light in the distance. I was like, that's my goal. That's where I need to be. I just got on the road and walked really slow to that light. 
Really, all I could think about was just get to this house. Just get to this house. Just get to this house. And I just banged on their door and I hear a gentleman. He's like, who's there? Who's there? You know? And, and I can't talk. So I'm just banging as hard as I can on the door. And then he opens the door. How fucking terrifying for this little 10-year-old little girl. So the reason she left the home, even though there were other family in the home, is because she thought that the man walked out and, like, you know, attacked the house. So she took, I think it was a back door or a side door, but she left the home. But thankfully, no, he did not hurt anybody else. He says he wanted to, though, which I mention in a second, but... Ugh. Yeah, the first time I read that, I got chills, and I still get chills. It's pretty terrifying. Awful. Now, 10-year-old Crystal was rushed to the hospital, and when she was well enough, she was able to describe the man that killed her and tried to take her life. A sketch was drawn up, and then police started pulling photos, and no doubt in her mind, she pointed to the man she saw at the end of the bed. It was none other than Tommy Lynn Sells. He gets arrested on January 2nd, 2000 just two days later, and police showed up to his residence at 5.30 a.m. They knocked on the door and then were met by Tommy. He looked at police and said, Glad I finally got caught. I was tired of doing this. Asshole, seriously. They also found the murder weapon, an 11-inch butcher knife. He had hidden it behind a bush, and he showed them where it was. The knife had been sharpened so many times that it was so thinned. From the moment Tommy Lynn Sells was in custody for this crime, he cooperated with police and told them everything they wanted to know. How he did this, what he wanted to do, his plan. He also said he wanted to kill all six of the people in the home that night. As they drove Tommy to the jail, he said, quote, So I guess you want to know about the other murders? End quote. And that's when police knew. This was way bigger than they could even think. And it was. Tommy admitted to all the crimes I mentioned today. And there's possibly even more. However, he was only tied to 13 murders. He was given the name Coast to Coast due to the fact he traveled around so often and committed these murders all across the U.S. On September 20th, 2000, he was sentenced to death for the crime of murder of Kayleen Harris. While on death row, he was put on trial for capital murder. On February 22, 2001, in the death of nine-year-old Mary B. Perez, he pled guilty and also, at this trial, confessed to the murder of Suzanne Corse, 27, from New York. From the age of 15 to 35, this man was in and out of prison and murdering all along the way. It is believed that he has killed between 13 and 50 people, possibly more. You have to remember, he was a carnival worker who traveled many, many places since the age of 13. So you can only imagine. He sat on death row until April 3rd, 2014, where family of Mary B. Perez and Crystal Searles and the Harris family all sat and watched as he slumbered off to never awake again. When asked if he'd like to say any final words, he simply shook his head and said no. What a wild fucking life this man lived. Never receiving mental help, and I'm also sure not being properly medicated for his disorder. Such a tragic and terrifying story 
but also a reminder to not trust so easily and to not bring strangers into your home, mi gente. Before we leave today, Stevie, my lovely friend Stevie from the podcast, Truth or Demons, which if you haven't listened to, you need to go listen to it, please. Also comment and leave a review and tell her that Laura sent you from Creepy Cheesemith. Uh, she sent in a listener story. So let's read it together because I love to save my emails to read for the first time while I'm recording. Hi, I'm sorry it took me so long. Because she's been telling me she was going to send me this. <laughs> I've got a couple for you. One ghost story from my grandparents' haunted house. And in the spirit of all that's going on in the world, I'll tell you my UFO sighting story from when I was a kid. Yes, I love UFO stories. My ghost story. So my grandparents have lived in this house in Middle Tennessee for the past 25 years or so. And I've lived there off and on over those 25 years. They'd travel and leave it up to one of us grandkids to move in and maintain it until they returned. A lot has happened to me there since I first lived there in 1998 when I was 12. But during my first turn watching the house when I was in my early 20s, I saw my first full-blown apparition in the house. Well, actually, just outside. One night after coming home from work, I pulled into the driveway like I normally do, and all of a sudden, right there in my headlights, was a man running across the driveway toward my house. I saw him long enough to see distinctive details, like I could tell he was from the 70s due to his haircut and style, and he was wearing this leather coat and a wool-lined lapel, a very popular 70s style coat, and khaki corduroy bell-bottoms. Then he disappeared as he ran outside the headlights beam. It happened so fast but almost in slow motion at the same time. And then there was no sign of him. Fast forward to several years later, I was staying in the house again and a friend of mine came to visit. She was staying in the guest room and was getting ready one day while I was in the living room just around the corner and she came running out of the room in a panic and white as, well, a ghost. And I asked her what did she see because I already knew it was ghost related. She described the same exact man I'd seen years before. And then I told her that. The validation she felt was tangible. It was a crazy experience. We got to share years apart. And we've tried to look up this man but can't find any record of anyone like him ever living or dying in this house or area. But I also have this theory that that particular house is possibly one of those paranormal gateways or portals. I'll have to send you more stories from my time there and explain why I think that more soon. Yes, tell us about the spooky house. I know I want to record with you. I told you that. Maybe we can talk about that. So that would be really cool. <laughs> All right, here's my UFO story. So when I was about 10, I went everywhere on my new Huffy mountain bike. It was my ticket to freedom as a kid. Ah, uh, the good old days. <laughs> but I still had to be home by dark. One day, trying to beat the sun setting, I was racing down the street behind the street my house was on. It was a hill, so I was going pretty fast. I don't know why, but I looked up over the Montgomery Ward's warehouse at the end of the road I was on. The road just dead-ended in this warehouse's parking lot. I slam on my brakes and skid to a stop, throwing gravel and rocks but managing not to wipe out. I get my balance under control and look up again. There is an object hovering over the warehouse and it looks like it's spinning. 
It looks like it has a row of lights around the center of it, and it was kind of shaped like a top, but flat on the bottom too. Then all of a sudden, it exploded. At least that's what it looked like. It flashed a bright orange flare-like light and then suddenly shot diagonally toward the ground on the other side of the warehouse behind a tree line. Behind a tree line I couldn't see past. I raced home to tell my mom, who said, It was probably just a shooting star and didn't entertain me further, but it was definitely not a shooting star. Hope you enjoyed my stories. I'll send more soon. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Wow. So here's the thing. I've seen UFOs and I've talked about this before on the podcast. In the past, I've seen UFOs. And yeah, like the way you described how fast it shot off, like you can't describe it, right? Like it was so fast. That's how one of them I saw disappeared. It looked like a fireball. Which almost made me think, like, is it a meteor? But no, because the one I saw, the light was just shining in the sky so bright for so long. It wasn't moving. It was something hovering over a little airport nearby where we live. And the speed it took off at, yeah. Like, I can't describe it other than, like, a shooting star. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, like, a shooting star. I don't know. But crazy. And thank you so much for sending those in. Remember, if you'd like to send me your creepy stories or experiences, send them to creepychisme4u, that's the number 4-Y-O-U at gmail.com. Follow me on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook groups. Just search creepychisme. Don't forget to leave me a review if you're listening on Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And hit those five estrellitas, five stars please and help us grow our creepy community. I love you guys. I'm going to go take a nap or something. No, it's Friday. I'm going out. (laughs) Gracias por escuchar. Y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening, and don't forget... Stay creepy and spread the chisme. Adios, mi gente.